You're listening to 340B Unscripted. Hey, everyone. Welcome to 340B Unscripted. My name's Greg Wilson. I'm here with Rob Nahoopi. Hey, Rob, how's it going? It's, it's going great, Greg. How are you doing? I'm doing great. It's the start of National Pharmacy Week, so we want to shout out to all of our technician friends out there, pharmacist friends. Really appreciate all the, the work that you guys do to, to advance the, the profession of pharmacy. Yes. Th- thank you for all you do for patient care, um, for getting drugs with where they need to get to and taking care of the patients out there, I, you know, and especially with, you know, the expanded roles that we have in pharmacy these days. I mean, our, I, I don't think um, without our pharmacists and interns being able to do vaccines through COVID, we really could have got uh, the COVID vaccines out as, as well as we did um, w- without the pharmacy population. So thank you all for everything you do. Yeah, just a, an incredible you know, amount of responsibility put on the pharmacy profession in the last couple of years, whether it was standing up vaccine clinics or managing the the rapidly changing recommendations around therapeutics for for managing COVID illness. Just really, really impressive to see how pharmacy professions really kind of stood up and taken a leadership role in, in managing such a, a crazy time in healthcare. For sure. We got a couple of other shout outs too that we wanted to make this week. We, we've got some unsolicited feedback through the 340B Health Exchange. We wanted to thank a few of our clients who reached out and um, in response to a, a post that was uh, posted up on the 340B Health uh, listserv um, regarding use of, of external auditors. We had a few folks um, kind of throw a, a shout out to the, the Spendman Pharmacy team. So we've got Jessica from the Mertu Medical Center. Sue Pearson from Tri-County State and John Simons from Central Washington. Really appreciate the uh, the feedback and the, the the unsolicited recommendations that you guys threw out there for us. It's really great to hear, Rob, isn't it? I, it honestly, from my perspective, it's amazing. And um, it almost like it, it almost makes me tear up a little because, w- you know, we try and provide the best 340B services possible. Um, we like to think we're one of the, the best organizations that do that. But, you know, we got, there's a lot of other good companies, a lot of good other um auditors and, and consultants out there. And just to hear the feedback from, from our clients, it means so much to us. So definitely a heartfelt thank you so much. We don't ask any of our clients to, to um, respond. Uh, they really do it on their own accord. And I can't tell you how much we appreciate um, you for doing that. So thank you if you're listening. Yeah, that, that feedback so so meaningful to us, but I think it's really helpful for other folks to hear. So if you're a covered entity or you're representing a covered entity, you're paying attention to that listserv and you you are seeing other folks kind of weigh in on, you know, decisions around who to select for external audits or what types of TPAs you might want to engage in. You know, I think just, you know, having folks participate and share insights and share feedback through that forum really helps you as a representative of a covered entity kind of be more, more confident in the decision-making process as you go through um, the process of trying to work with a vendor. So it's great for us to hear, but I know, you know, the folks out there that are working in the 340B space also like to see that type of dialogue happening in that, uh, in that for- forum. So thanks again. All right. Well, I, I can't let you end this part without at least quoting um, John um, from Central Washington. 
Uh, and you know, I'll skip the first part. Oh, he says, we, ha- we have had a great experience working with Spenman, Turnkey. We appreciate you identifying both names. Uh, that's fantastic. But this is the part I love. Our auditor, Greg Wilson, is highly skilled and a wealth of knowledge. So how, how, how do you feel about that, Greg? I, I don't know what he's talking about. A wealth of knowledge of, of 340B is questionable. But, you know, uh, John and, and Christy, you know, I've worked with them a good bit. Uh, they're at the Central Washington Hospital in um, the Pacific Northwest. You know, and it's one, one thing I love about this job is I've never actually met them in person. You know, I, we started working with them right at the start of the pandemic, uh, worked with them on an external audit, and they had a HRSA audit shortly thereafter. So, you know, my interactions with them have been all through phone calls and through email and through Zoom. So even though I haven't met them face-to-face, face-to-face, we, we still have a really strong rapport. And, you know, I don't think I'd be able to have the, that type of interaction with folks from across the country if I wasn't in a role with, with uh, SpendMed. So I'm just really grateful to, to be in my role and being able to work with folks from all across the country. So thank you, John, for the kind comments. Your Panera gift card is in the mail. Appreciate it. <laughs> Hopefully you have a Panera near you. Uh, (laughs) Excellent. All right. So we we kind of added this topic for the podcast today on on a whim. Um, You know, we're going to talk about uh, what what might be a a controversial topic. So back on Saturday, um, September 24th, the New York Times published an article that was part of a series of articles called Profits over patients, where they highlighted um, a uh, a particular hospital in uh, the the Commonwealth of Virginia, who uh, is participating in the 340B program. And the article kind of discusses, you know, some, you know, uh, maybe some accusations or some suggestions that uh, this particular health system and hospital have been uh, taking advantage of their participation in the 340B program to maximize profits um, at the expense of neglecting one of their hospitals. We're going to get into the details of the uh, the article today. Brought it up during a team meeting uh, right after it was published, and we have a a colleague that's going to be joining us, William Mayhood, who um, jumped right up and said, "Yeah, you know, I have a lot of thoughts about what was published in the New York Times article. I'd love to be able." to talk about it. So Rob, let folks know uh, who William is. Uh, William, so so first of all, I, I've had an opportunity to work with William um, uh, quite a few times now, and he he is just amazing at his 340B knowledge and really his thoughtfulness around 340B um, uh, aspects of the program. Um, now, William is a JD or an attorney by training. And of course, uh, from our experience working with Rich Boer, um, you know, we love working with JDs. They always have that um, kind of Kind of thought process that's a little different as they kind of look at legal components or um, kind of more more specific items around uh, way things work, and I think they always bring a lot to the table. So he's a he's excellent member of our team. Um, I think we wouldn't be as good as we are without him. So excited to to have William on the podcast for the first time. My guess is it won't be his last either. So looking forward to this. But William, not only as an attorney, but he worked at um, d- worked with quite a few different covered entities before joining SpendMend and specifically a large academic medical center, or some smaller hospitals. So he really has a scope of knowledge that's that's beneficial for all of our clients um, that get to work with him. So excited to have William on and. I guess. Uh, and, and one thing I should mention, or at least bring up uh, for those that, that listen to our podcast in the last episode, um, the Inflation Reduction Act, we did mention that, hey, our next uh, episode would be around HRSA audits. And uh, as as Greg mentioned, we decided to put this in there because we thought it was timely. We also thought, you know, our next episode after this release will be on October 31st. And so we've moved the uh, HRSA audit um, uh, 
podcast to October 31st, which is Halloween and HRSA audits being kind of scary. We just thought that worked. Mm-hmm. Uh, so just, just as, a, as a public service announcement, uh, that's when the, that will occur. Um, but if you're just dying to hear more about HRSA audits now, we do have the webinar that Jennifer Hagen and uh, Chelsea Violet recorded on uh, October 4th. Um, that you can always review, um, and and uh, if you don't have access to it, just just request it from someone at Spendman. We'll get you a copy of that webinar that really goes into the data requests and and the changes we've seen with uh, HRSA audits for fiscal year 2023. Well, without further ado, um, let's uh, take a quick break, and then we'll we'll get to our interview. The 340B Unscripted Podcast is brought to you by Spendman Pharmacy. Do you wish you had another 340B expert on your team to help you manage your 340B program, but there's no time or budget available to hire an FTE? The Spendman Pharmacy 340B Staff Augmentation Solution provides you with an industry expert to help manage your 340B compliance tasks. Visit spendman.com and follow the pharmacy links to learn how you can maximize your 340B efforts. All right, welcome back. We've got Rob and we've got William. William, welcome to the podcast. Well, thank you. And thank you for the introduction, Rob. I appreciate it. Absolutely. It's great working with you, especially when we went out to California for our last uh, um, audit with, with a client. Uh, try not to mention too many clients since we didn't get permission, but uh, it was fun fun um, hanging out there and, and getting to know you better and, and uh, also working with the client there. W- William got to see my uh, my my driving skills. We uh, right right after William you started with the with Spendman, we had a, a a training audit together. We were out in Connecticut, and um, he got to see the you know the 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 scatterbrained uh, driving skills that I have when I don't have uh, my phone connected in in GPS available. Driving through the rural parts of Connecticut. So William, I apologize. I know we we spent a good bit of time in that Mini Cooper and. Um, probably not the most uh, <laughs> comfortable way to, 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 you know, start working with somebody. Some uh, white knuckle driving. Is that what that was? <laughs> it was a uh, great uh, geographical challenges without uh, some form of a navigation right in front of <laughs> right available at all times. It was pretty funny. So no, I enjoyed that. And it was a good, uh, good audit. We're we're glad to have you today. Again, I think I think it's probably a topic that that many folks in the 340B space would just probably want to avoid because the, the this article that was public published in the New York Times really does kind of cast a a shadow over um, not just you know one particular health system in the Virginia area, but the 340B program at large. So glad to kind of talk through that today. Rob, let's start with you. Um, you want to give us a little cliff notes or, or synopsis of what you took away from from this particular article? Absolutely. So first of all, it was a long article. So if those who haven't read the New York Times article, um, it, it's a pretty long article. You also need access to the New York Times, which makes it a little tricky. Um, fortunately for me, um, one of my uh, my my sister in law has access. Um, I think they like the the crossword puzzles, um, and she's allowed to give articles uh, to friends and family that they have X number of these. So I was able to get a full copy of it, read through it, um, took a couple sittings, and really the article just really focuses on a hospital, um, like you said, in in Richmond area. It's actually Richmond Community Hospital. Um, and it's it's in a it's in an underserved area. Um, the article, you know, says it's in a pre- predominantly black neighborhood, um, and really that Richmond Community Hospital has been struggling. Um, and over time, um, the different departments have closed down, including the ICU. Um, there's supposed to be some expansion of services that haven't occurred yet, although um, we understand they are occurring. In fact, that some of the 
the medical office building actually broke ground this year. But really, the article goes into the fact that with services closing and and patients not being able to get the care they needed as quick as they could have it um, by by having a local community hospital with an ICU, it may have caused some impact on health um, and and possibly even um, a death potentially. And and the article really points to the fact that uh, as you get deeper into the article, it, it highlights that Richmond Community Hospital is a 340B hospital and uh, does have a significant amount of savings because it does have um, some child sites that are further out than just this particular neighborhood. Um, and, and some of those child sites are in nicer neighborhoods. And because of that, there's a different payer mix and, and all combined, this particular covered entity does have a significant amount of savings in 340B. And the question is, why aren't more of those dollars going to this particular hospital and community that was acquired by the health system? And 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 so that's really what the article kind of talks about, and um, and and sort of like you said, Greg, kind of points to the fact that maybe the hospital should be doing more with the savings to help this community specifically instead of investing in other things. And although we we don't um, disagree with them, I I just want to highlight that there's always two sides to the story, and. And I think hearing from um, the health system, it's a uh, bond secures. I was actually afraid to say say the name because I wasn't sure how to fully pronounce it. But um, you know, I, I think uh, there's always other parts of the story. We've all worked in healthcare and know that sometimes it's hard to recruit um, staff and physicians. Um, sometimes there's there's issues with the building and its ability, you know, to meet code, uh, to meet joint commission accreditation, all these things that make it even harder than people realize or much more costly to do things. I'm not saying that not saying the investment shouldn't occur, um, but maybe it's in progress. And we just don't know kind of what those timeframes are. COVID definitely slowed some things down over the past couple of years when it came to projects and building. Um, staffing has become much more difficult through COVID, right? So there's all these factors we don't know about. Um, and so I do think um, it was a pretty, pretty aggressive article um, to, uh, against this health system, which I don't know if it's fully merit without hearing the full side of the story. So I'll just kind of leave it at that. So people, if they can, can read it or at least understand that there's always two sides to the story that, that should be taken into account. But um, but but all in all, um, tough read uh, because I know health systems do so much good with 340B savings and really help patient care. And we've got some statistics we'll bring up later. Um, to read, but I'll pause there because I know um, both of you have read it. Love to get your take as well, or William, kind of what your thoughts were as you read through that article. Sure. Um, no, William, I was going to say, you know, looking at from from your read, you know, any anything that jumps out at you around whether they're you know suggesting or out, uh, alleging non-compliance, is or is this an issue of optics? Yeah, so that's a that's a great question. It's sort of something that sticks out right away, right? Is that there's a difference between a compliance issue, a legal issue, or question, and an optics issue. And in this case, um, while the New York Times highlights some areas of of the program, it's not necessarily a non-compliant practice or or use of the program. In fact, they're not doing anything um, based upon what was reported inconsistent with what might be done at other systems or, or any hospital um, for that matter that participates in the program. Yeah. So I think, yeah, no, I, I think you, you know, just, just, just looking at, at the hospital and, and the, you know, he, he reading about the, the, the change in essentially the, the infrastructure of how those hospital based clinics, you know, were able to be licensed under the Richmond community hospital. Um, 
such that they could participate in the 340B program. If you remember the House Energy and Committee, uh, Energy and Commerce Committee hearing on 340B back in 2018, I mean, this was a common strategy that a lot of hospitals admitted to doing. You know, it was just reorganizing certain hospital-based clinics under a particular hospital provider, whether or not it's it, for the intention of capitalizing on 340B participation. Really nothing in the, the statute or the guidance and the rules and the regs of the 340B program that would prevent you from doing it. So really here, it's just a matter of, you know, optics around, you know, the 340B savings generated from that maneuver, you know, may not have been fully reinvested back into that particular covered entity. And maybe were shared across, you know, other 340B participating covered entities across the, the health system. So yeah, again, not nothing that would suggest overt non-compliance, but, you know, certainly not a good look when, you know, Virginia Health Information website is reporting you know, $100 million worth of, of net revenue for that particular hospital in 2020. But um, the hospital stated that they've you know invested about $10 million going back to 2013 in their uh, uh, 2018, excuse me, um, in their um, facilities. So, you know, I, I think you're right, Rob. It's really a matter of, you know, whether or not they're doing enough to uh, invest in improved uh, you know, quality of care delivered at that particular hospital. Yeah, no, for sure, for sure. Uh, one, one thing, if I can, you know, as as I you know read not only the article but some of the um, the follow up articles from 340B Health, and one thing I like to just state is um, can't appreciate how much um, 340B Health does to stay on top of these things to make sure that they're balancing some negative. Uh, press with positive press and all the positive things that um, hospitals and health systems are doing for their patients. In fact, um, in their very timely uh, response, um, they they highlighted a um, the fact that what the article doesn't talk about or reflect is how much good um, 340B hospitals are doing for for patients. And and an article, interesting. I'm not sure the time. I, it has it had to have been planned um, ahead of time, so I don't think it was. It correlates with the release of that article, but uh, they did highlight a, a basically a, a a report from Dobson and Devanzo. It's Health Economics Consulting that really looked at some of the financials around the 340B program and specifically dish hospitals and and are they serving higher a higher share of patients with low incomes? And if I can, um, 340B Health kind of pub, uh, publishes and, and provided some links. So thank you, um, 340B Health, for doing that. Um, but I'll just highlight two findings from the article, which I just want to point out because this is what's critical. I, I think people read this New York Times article and think, oh my gosh, not enough has been done or the 340B savings aren't really helping care. But even in the case of Bon Secures, I, I know that there are other hospitals, including um, the hospital in question, does in fact uh, provide a significant amount of charity care and, and, and um, savings to the organization. Um, but what this article pointed out is that the 340B hospitals provide three quarters, so over 77%, so over three quarters of the care to Medicaid patients. And so, and, and remember that Medicaid um, is great because it does cover this uh, um, patient population that n- does need insurance, that isn't getting it through employment, or at least is underinsured. And Medicaid's not the best pair. Um, those of us who have seen the reimbursements, Medicaid, because of their funding, really, really kind of has ratcheted down reimbursement because they've got to care for as many patients as possible. So that's important that our 340B hospitals are providing over three-fourths the care to Medicaid patients. The second big number is when you look at uncompensated care and unreimbursed care. So basically charity care and then, and then 
uncompensated or unreimbursed, meaning that even co-pays aren't being paid and being written off, the 340B hostels provide over two-thirds of the uncompensated, unreimbursed care. And of course, and people are like, yeah, but do they have two-thirds of the hospitals? And the answer is no. Um, 340B hospitals actually account for less than half and closer to 40 or actually close to 43% of the hospitals. So so less than half the hospitals are 43%, yet they provide over two-thirds of the uncompensated, unreimbursed care. So so I get what the article is trying to say, but the 340 program as a whole does allow our hospitals, our safety net hospitals, to really take care of the patients in need. Um, and I just wanted to highlight those two things because I think that's so important to balance um, what we read um, in particular articles with, with, with other facts that are out there and just as critical. And to piggyback yeah. off of it. No, go ahead, William. To piggyback off of the facts, Rob, I really agree with that because having worked in many different entities, sizes and, and types from grantees to dishes and, um, and critical access hospitals, it really makes a big difference about what you can do for patient care. And by and large, if we look at the New York Times article in a different light, whereby they've utilized the 340B program uh, to, although tied sort of not as transparently, which I'll come back to in a second, but to expand their, their financial ability to serve patients, the program is working as intended, right? So when it passed, when 340B was passed, congressional intent from 1992 was that it was to stretch scarce federal health health resources. And so that's what's happening. And oftentimes it's sort of not as, it's not realized how, how much the program does for all kinds of entities, irrespective of what their bottom line looks like. And having been in an academic medical center that had a large 340B program with almost a 50% dish uh, percentage, it makes it, you know, you start to not be able to take care of patients without the program. Um, and it truly comes to difference in outcomes, among other things. Yeah, so, so much of the, the dialogue, I feel, um, in the last year or so, particularly from those that are challenging the you know, the, the value or, or I guess the, the integrity of the 340B program, it always, you know, always comes back to, you, you know, drug cost savings and, and drug discounts provided at the point of sale for patients. But, you know, th- these 340B covered entities need the 340B savings, not just to help, you know, patients gain access to those medications, but also to keep the lights on, to hire staff, to, you know, uh, renovate the, you know, aging facilities of their, um, their buildings. So, you know, there, there's so many areas where these covered entities need help um, and, and need to use that, that 340B savings. It's not always going to be spent on one particular um, area of their, their, their operations. You, you, you guys make a very good point that I want to highlight. Um, and my wife yells at me for being repetitive, but I think, you know, if, if we say it three times and it must be important, plain devil's advocate to the New York Times article, what we don't know is, you know, was Richmond, um, this facility, this hospital at risk of being closed down entirely, right? That's, it's those, those things that we don't know about. It's um, kind of soft, soft um, benefits where we don't know what would have happened, but, you know, is Bonsigers acquiring the hospital and just keeping the doors open, even though the hospital itself is losing money. We, we don't know all those things. Um, but, you know, without 340B, is it, is it a loss? And, and Bonskers is a, 
ability to to leverage a 340B to 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 create savings to just to keep the hospital open and just fighting to do that in light of rising costs, rising um, salaries, um, lack of staff available, and then just just revenue coming in may not be where it needs to be to 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 have a positive cash flow to be financially viable. Those are the things that we don't know about, and so I think keeping the lights on is important. I mean, we work with a lot of critical access hospitals that tell us. Without our 340B savings, we probably wouldn't even be open anymore. And the saddest thing I hear or watch in the news articles that I read, you know, I get a lot of listservs like Becker's and uh, Modern Healthcare. And then the ones I always get sad about is when I see oh, hospitals closing, seven critical access hospitals closing in Texas or in certain states. And every time I start, like, gosh, I wish we would have worked, could have worked with them to see if we could improve their savings so we could keep the doors open because that's exactly why the program was created. Yeah. So, so that patients in these rural communities would have access to healthcare. Um, so that that's sad, but I, I that's why I still want to throw that out there because that could be it that the hospital is still open because of the three forty B program. Without it, maybe it wouldn't even be open, and that, that's important consideration. Yeah, I mean, really, you know, sad to hear of the these un, the unfortunate circumstances of of this hospital kind of sh- slowing down services contracting services and the potential impact that that had on outcomes over the last few years, but certainly, you know, not seeing the full picture here, having not ever worked with these folks. So what, um, you know, next kind of transitioning away from the article per se, but what covered entities probably need to do to protect themselves in the event that they are, they're faced with some type of investigation like this, you know, if you're a, you know, a hospital in a, a particular region of the U.S. and and you're approached by a journalist for the the local newspaper to talk about the 340B program, what what tools, Rob, do we think covered entities need to have in place to kind of defend their participation in the 340B program? Yeah, I, I um, yeah, in preparation, I, I kind of looked some things up because I wanted to see if it had full access for everybody. But again. Kind of big 340 health push uh, uh, in this uh, podcast episode. So um, hopefully, if anyone from 340 health is listening, um, we love you guys. Appreciate everything you do. One thing that I recommend every single hospital um, covered entity, and even FQHCs, I think could benefit, or other grantees could benefit from this as well. But if you go to 340bhealth.org and uh, you click on the member section, now uh, we are members, um, but even if you're not a member, you'll be able to see in the column on the left um, on 340bhealth.org under members. There's some um, links that don't have a lock on it. If there's a lock, that means you do have to be a paid member um, of 340B Health and, and do recommend every hospital and, and, and grantee that can should join. But even if you're not, click on the advocacy toolkit. It's in one of the sections that doesn't have a lock on it, that doesn't require you to log in. And there's a section called impact profiles. Um, say that again because I might have slurred that impact profiles. Um, and if you click on impact profiles, it kind of gives a description and then it has some links. One's the impact profile guidebook and an impact profile template. And then below that has a variety of hospitals um, samples of how they filled out their um, their 340B impact or impact impact profile. And what we recommend, it's a one pager that allows you to hand that to uh, you know uh, someone from Congress if they come by, um, to someone from the media if they come by and ask these questions. But it also helps you as an organization look at it and say, okay, are we doing enough? What are we doing um, with our savings? Um, which I think is is really important. So if, if you haven't already done so, take a look at them. 
Um, Riverside Health System actually has one that they've kind of created that's not part of the template, I think looks really good. So definitely take a look and see if you don't already have one. Um, I think this should be on your to-do list is to create your um, impact profile. Um, so I know Greg or uh, William, if you guys have other thoughts on anything else you can do as well. So I would, I think that that is a quick and not necessarily easy, but a, a really good first step. Uh, outside of that, I think that enhanced transparency, working with whether it's uh, you're just like your oversight committee or just your legal counsel of some sort, but developing more of a how you use your savings that's a little more specific. Or if, let's say the New York Times is asking you for, for information instead of guising it or or not being as transparent, which causes sort of that that inquiry to, uh, or response to not seem as um, as as working like the program working as it's intended to to have a more engaging discussion and show what you even if you didn't have an impact statement, all the things that you do with the program, uh, I think would be another way because it's truly down to the optics. And so the more engaging you are with the community or otherwise, I think the better. Yeah, I, th I always think that's a it's a great topic for 340B steering committees or oversight committees is, you know, have that as a standing item on your agenda. What are we doing across the hospital or across the organization that, you know, is, you know, by virtue of us participating in the 340B program? Because, you know, a lot of the 340B staff are a little bit removed from clinical practice and the frontline patient care aspect of operations at the hospital. So making sure that you're in the loop of the different things that are happening across your organization, I think is really important for you to know. I also always suggest covered entities take a look at, particularly hospital covered entities, look at the, um, the American Hospital Association or the AHA 340B hospital commitment to good stewardship principles. And there's really good guiding principles on um, the AHA's website around how you want to articulate you know, the value of the 340B program and, you know, what you as a covered entity are doing to ensure that you're being a good steward of the 340B program. They advocate for communicating the value of the 340B program in these impact statements, providing, you know, transparency around what your 340B estimated savings is, and also promoting, you know, ongoing rigorous internal oversight. So making sure that you're, you know, following the uh, the the rules and the regulations and are adhering to the the statute and guidance that's been put out by HRSA around 340B program operations. So, good steward good stewardship principles at um, AHA I think are a good starting point if you're a covered entity that's looking to try to develop a um, an impact statement in addition to what 340B Health has put out there. I really agree. I think that that's the the really ideal way to go. Yeah, I, and, um, and and I think the take-home message there is uh, you don't know when you're going to be contacted. I, I remember years ago when um, the first time I think this happened, I'm not going to get the details right, but it was in North Carolina. I think it was Senator Grassley. Someone's going to have to correct me if that's wrong. Yeah. Um, and and it wasn't his – whoever it was, it wasn't their state. They went to a different state and talked to a couple of different hospitals, big academic medical centers. And and, and it was the first time we really saw uh, Congress, a Congress person, um, kind of really go – not say go after because that's probably not fair, but ask a lot of questions about 340B and what's being done with the savings. It really scared a lot of people. Um, and I do think it's going to take um, hospitals and, and 
to a lesser extent grantees because of their grants that they already have some requirements and so they're already you know that's already a little bit more transparent but hospitals creating this transparency you guys are talking about and being proactive about it reporting right it's it's one of the things we always say we either can self-govern ourselves as as or the covered entities can the hospitals or at some point in time congress will likely enact some legislation that's going to require some transparency and maybe transparency in a way that's going to take way more effort and resources than we want, right? It's going to have this negative impact on, on staffing to have to collate all these numbers and things down the road. So, so I love what AHA is trying to do with um, doing it ahead of time and being proactive and being good stewards of the program. So I think that's a great call out for what AHA um, has been trying to do with that uh, transparency and, and, and reporting. Well, Rob, you, you, you're leading into my next question. This was really for you. Every, every time we talk on this podcast, we always ask you to break out crystal ball. Do you think the, you know, 340B savings and, um, you know, other metrics around covered entities involvement in the 340B program, you think that becomes part of statute in the future? Yeah. And I'm going to, I'm going to answer, but William, I want you to think about this. You've got the legal background. So I, I think uh, your, your take would be uh, fantastic as well, but I think, yes, when I, when I think about what type of legislation, might be bipartisan, might get enough uh, votes. I do think transparency legislation is high on the list. I, I think there's very few legislations probably on the list, to be honest, but I think that's one of them. I, I don't think there's any, I don't think um, even the pro 340B um, you know, representatives or senators would be against transparency of where the savings are going. I, I think a lot of um, uh, senators and representatives do understand the importance of 340B, so I don't think 340B goes away, but I do think that's one that could be the olive branch to the 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 groups that are against the 340B program for whatever you know reason they have um, is creating transparency and how much savings are and and what that savings is being used for. Um, I, so I don't necessarily think it's a bad thing as long as people realize what the intent of the program is and that it's not just to take all those savings and provide charity care. Sometimes it is to keep the doors open. Sometimes it is to expand services in communities that don't have services. Um, and sometimes adding services actually creates more savings because they're hospital-based or, um, you know, the child sites of the hospital and all those prescriptions qualify. Um, so I do think that's probably high in my list. Um, the question is when, right? We're in a um, election year this uh, coming up and, and then we're going to possibly have a you know, we don't know what happens next year. And then after that, it's, it's the presidential election. So I, I don't know when it occurs, but I do think that is something that could get some legs and either, you know, next year, or the year after, or the year after that possibly pass. And, and then we'll have forced transparency, which may not be what, what we want it to look like. William, do you concur? Or do you think we're going to see 340B financial performance metrics as uh, a program requirement in the future? I think that we'll see the it'll become some form of a requirement, whether it's in statute or through uh, regulatory authority will make a difference in it. Um, but I, I think that we'll see that come eventually. It's necessary probably, right, to keep the program uh, continuing as it is. And another thing that sort of came to mind was that in addition to your impact statement that Rob sort of said, it was, um, patient stories of what your outcomes are with 340B would also really help, Um, you know, whether it's through offering patients being able to bridge the gap in cancer care, which I've had a lot of uh, fortunate opportunities to work in, um, or even down to insulin and and diabetic uh, drugs. So I think that that's a really good way that you can also convey how much you help your patients and improve outcomes uh, that's sort of lost in, in, translation sometimes 
But with respect to transparency in terms of reporting, I do think that that will eventually come. I agree with Robin. The timeline, I'm not quite sure. But if covered entities in the 340B program sort of do, to Rob's point, work towards that really good stewardship piece model, we might be able to have it even before it, it, it's a requirement. Okay, hey, I'm going to throw it out there. Here's my here's my line. Here's my uh, throw like a betting line here. I'm going to say three years is the over under. You taking over or under that, William? That's actually what I was really thinking around. It was around three <laughs> to four years, probably. Actually, I don't think it'll be a priority right away. Exactly. I think that there's yeah. other things on the table. Yeah, I agree. The next two years are fraught with um, other issues bigger than this, and so I, I think three years is probably our best bet. Uh, Greg, I got to ask you then. So, so, so I think it sounds like um, William's in line with me three-ish, four. So he might be a little more on the over side. What do, what do you think? Over under three? I'll take the over. Yeah, I think uh, I, I, I do. See, I think we'll see. You know, some some level of requirement for covered entities to disclose 340B savings, but we're not going to see that in statute. It's not going to be discussed in Congress probably till after the next presidential election. So that's what 2024. So yeah, that's that's three years. Um, you know, 2025, the next uh, election cycle. So yeah, yeah. I'm, I'll take you over. That sounds about right. I think I'm with you guys. I, I'd like to, I like to go, um, you know, RBG and dissent, but uh, I, I think I'm with you with the over three. But you're right, William, the patient profiles really hit home, especially for, for those of us that have worked on the front lines in healthcare. You know, it's really, you know, nice to see, you know, patients have an opportunity to kind of, you know, praise the 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 care that they've received from from covered entities so you know i think 340b health again has done a great job of of uh kind of sharing those those examples of uh, of patients who've really been able to you know explain the the value of 340b covered entities being in their in their communities so uh, i think that's a great suggestion also love patient stories those are my favorite patients often really want to share their their, their 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 success with the program. So I think that's a great Excellent. way. Um, all right, guys. Well, I think we're, we're about close to wrapping up here. Any last thoughts, comments, things you want to share around this topic? No, I, I love ending with patient stories. I, I think that's, um, I think one thing that we can all, all organizations can do better at is identifying where 340B has really helped patient care and uh, resulted in positive outcomes for patients and sharing those stories. So love to love to hear about them. If anyone ever does um, have a patient story that they'd like to come on the podcast and share or even have, um, if the patient be interested in sharing, we'd love to kind of host them and ha have them share kind of how 340B has helped them. Or as an organization, if you just want to share the stories that you've collected, we'd love to have you on. So please reach out to us and let us know. And hopefully we can make that a, a podcast episode um, in the future. Yeah. Great idea. William, thank you so much for joining. We're so happy that you were able to hop on, have a little discussion with us tonight. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Fantastic. All right, everyone. That's going to wrap it up for us this week. Our next podcast is going to focus on HRSA audit readiness and HRSA audit preparation. We've got another SpendMed colleague that's going to be joining us for that, as well as a client who just went through a HRSA audit. So hope you tune in for our next episode. Um, again, my name's Greg. Thanks, Rob, for um, hosting with me, and uh, we'll catch you guys next time. Take care. Sounds good. Thanks, Greg. Thanks, William. See everyone. Thanks for listening to 340B Unscripted. Subscribe today on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts.